Mark. Hello, Joe. How are things? How's the weather? Let's be Canadian. You know, I'm in I'm in the Maritimes. I was in Prince Edward Island most of today, back in New Brunswick now. But it was a beautiful day in PEI. Yeah. It was nice here in Ontario area too. I don't believe that for a second. It was. No, it was gorgeous. Yeah. So I have a question that's not about the weather. Okay. But it is sort of a Canadian question too. And hopefully it wanna, a, our guest will have an answer for it as well. So have you ever run for any kind of office or run someone's campaign for office? Could be any kind of office too. It doesn't have to be. You know what? I tried to help somebody become president of the school council in high school. And I think that is the closest I've ever come to politics. I've never run for anything myself and nor do I care to. Yeah. <laughs> and, those... and that campaign didn't go well in, in high school. Oh no. <laughs> so, no, he lost. He may have got two votes for Oh him. no. I'm sure he would have gotten none if you hadn't helped. Uh, Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give, give me the credit for that. How about you? Uh, yeah, I have. I actually, when I went to university, I went to Queens in my first year, I ran for student council president and won that. And then a couple of years later, the Rhino party asked me to run in the federal election. Are and you I, serious? I was so close to doing it too, because I would have got to debate Flora McDonald. And the platform really appealed to me. That was the year that the party wanted to be self-sufficient in bananas. That was our main plank of our platform. And I was like, oh, but then I realized if I did that, I was not going to graduate because I wouldn't have been able to keep going to school. So Mark, I, I you need to go no. back in time and, and do that. <laughs> no, I don't have many regrets in life, but that actually is one. But I thought this might be a question that our guest, Terry Fallis, might have an answer to as well. I expect so. Yeah. Well, uh, guys, I did run. I was heavily involved with student politics when I was at McMaster. And uh, like you, Mark, and in my final year, after I actually had my my mechanical engineering degree, I I ran for president of the students' union and somehow got myself elected. So that was a full time job for uh, the next year. Uh, which was uh, you know, life-changing in many ways for me. But uh, yeah, so I have run a campaign, my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, traipsed through residences and classrooms and uh, had a stump speech. And uh, it was a great experience, all in all. And that's a big job, running the student union. For, like, it was for the main student union for the whole yeah. university. Yeah, it yeah, was. A, it, yeah. It was it was a big job uh, and like full time job. I was constitutionally precluded from taking any courses. You know, but it's yeah. a full time job. Yeah, we had twenty three full time employees, about four hundred uh, part time employees, and yeah, it was a you know budget was a couple of million bucks, I guess, at the time. Yeah, but, uh, that's geez, that's that's a cool years. experience though. My, see, mine was very much more restricted. It was just the year. I was the president of the year and I got to sit on the sort of general council and I'm like, I don't want to do any more of this. That was, <laughs> that was an, I want to write silly plays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know what, this is a good time to segue into actually the question that we always ask too late in yes. the podcast, uh, which is about yourself. I, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, what we do in this podcast is we ask the guests to introduce themselves so you can put yourself in in the most favorable light possible, embellishing yeah. here and there, and nobody will know. To the point of complete fantasy, if you want. <laughs> sure. Although there is a Wikipedia page about yeah. you, which it could, you know. That's true. 
That's true. And we know Wikipedia is always right. Well, we can retcon the Wikipedia if we need to. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm Terry Fallis. I uh, was born and raised in Toronto. So I'm one of the few people who was actually born and has have lived most of my life here. A few a few short years at McMaster in Hamilton and uh, a year or so in Ottawa uh, working in, in politics. But uh, yeah, I have a degree in mechanical and biomedical engineering. I've never been an engineer in the truest professional sense, but my engineering background or predilections or inclinations, I think, shape almost everything that I do, including uh, writing my novels. But I had a, a early career in politics on Parliament Hill and at Queen's Park, the provincial capital here in Ontario. Then I was I spent 35 years in a communications public affairs consulting world. We created our own agency in 1995 that continues even today, uh, with my name on the door with somebody else's to a, a double-barreled name. And uh, though I retired last March, or two Marches ago now, I finally realized my dream of being a full-time writer. Not because I earn enough on my novels to be a full-time writer, but because I spent 15 years since my first novel ardently saving so that I could afford to retire and just write. Plus, I married well above my station. <laughs> <laughs> that always helps. Yeah. Things yeah. that I aspire to. All these are things that I, I'm going I'm to take your playbook. <laughs> wow. And uh, just to flesh out your bio a little bit, you've won the Stephen Leacock Award twice. Yes, and, miraculously, yes. Or, I'm sure, well-deserved. And also, uh, Canada Reads. I, I won Canada Reads once, or at least my novel won it. Uh, the Best Laid Plans won in 2011. It was the 10th anniversary year, so ah, right. they made okay. a big deal out of things then, and they they were going to call the winner of, of Canada Reads that year, regardless of what book won, the essential Canadian novel of the decade. <laughs> and that phrase has somehow become attached to my novel because it won Canada Reads, which is such a ridiculous notion, as you guys uh, would completely understand, both of you being talented writers uh, as well. So uh, anyway, that, that's always cracks me up because it gets into my introductions, you know, author of uh, <laughs> The Best Way Plans, the essential Canadian novel of the decade. <laughs> Uh, but you know what? Like I, I read Rick Mercer's uh, yeah. memoir, and he he mentions uh, several times smoke and mirrors. It's all about smoke and mirrors. <laughs> so that, that's a little bit of uh, smoke and mirrors that uh, can only help. Exactly. It occurs to me we should explain what Canada Reads is for listeners who aren't from Canada, because we have yeah. listeners from everywhere. Who wants to try to tackle that? And well, my next question is, guy, Joe, who defended <laughs> who defended your book, Terry? Well, uh, the guy who defended my book, my champion was uh, CNN business correspondent, chief business correspondent at the time, Ali Velshi, who is okay. now on yeah. NBC, I think, or MSNBC. But Canada Reads is just this annual, it's kind of like a, it's, it's Survivor in the book world. Yeah. Five books are nominated for Canada Reads. They each have a celebrity defender or as big a celebrity defender as we might have in Canada. <laughs> And on live radio and streaming television, they uh, they debate the books and they vote one book off each episode. And then finally, the last book standing is the winner of Canada Reads, 
which you know sounds like lots of fun and frivolity, which it is, but it's also extraordinarily important for the writer who happens to win because mm-hmm. Canada Reads is a big deal in Canada. It sells more books in this country than anything else except for the Giller Prize. I was going to say, isn't the Giller Prize kind of like yeah. the big... Yeah, the Giller is, is I, that's why I say it that way, then I tack on, except ah, yeah. at the end. But my novel at the time had sold about 10,000 copies. And now, because of the Canada Reads effect, the and the little badge, Canada Reads winner on the cover, not so much what's between the covers, but just that badge, <laughs> it's sold about 150,000 copies now. Wow, wow. congratulations. Which, that's amazing. You know, if you're in, in Britain, that may not sound like big numbers, but in Canada, that, those are uh, yeah. those are pretty strong, strong numbers. So it is a great blessing. So I, I sort of think of the Leacock Medal, because that's the first thing that happened to me in my writing life on my first novel. I feel like that made me a writer. Canada Reads made me a, a bestseller and that the after effects are, are still there. So I, I'm, there is no more grateful a writer in this land than I. So what distresses me about that is that a few moments ago, you said that you weren't earning enough <laughs> from the sales of your book to be able to be a full-time writer. And yet you're seeing numbers like that. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, that's, you know, it, there was a big bulge in one of those years. And then there was another, maybe a, a nice little kick when, you know, The Best Laid Plans, my first novel was turned into a six-part television miniseries. Mm. That pays a lot better than than selling the book. But other than that, it's I, there aren't many Canadian writers who can... Uh, who can make it uh, just on their book sales. Obviously, Margaret Atwood we, would be counted among those lucky few. Lawrence Hill probably does pretty well. The Book of Negroes mm. sold five or 600,000 copies. So My neighbor might be making Emma Don- Donahue was in my neighborhood. And yeah, yeah, Emma yeah, she she might, does yeah. pretty well. But, was, but, not, but, but she would do well in her international sales as yeah. well. And also I'm, movies I'm and stuff. I'm sort of a strictly Canadian uh, writer. I don't. I have one foreign deal. I think uh, my fourth novel was translated and published in Taiwan, of all places. Oh, that's great! Uh, I've never seen anything from it, so maybe it wasn't that great. Wow. Uh, but so, yeah, I rely on the Canadian market alone, and uh, we're a pretty small country for a very big country. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm delighted to be able to tell you that appearing on this podcast will increase your sales by two or three. <laughs> by up to two or three. <laughs> Why do you think I leapt at this opportunity? <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah. Um, I just want to go back to Canada Reads very quickly to give uh, some credit where credit is due, because you had asked about it, Mark. And uh, some of these people behind the scenes, you know, they don't get their name out there. Just to mention that it was created by Peter Kavanaugh who was a very well-regarded books producer uh, with CBC Radio. Well, he, he had the, the the general idea, apparently, and then Tilene Vartanian ran with that, and she ran with mm-hmm. that for, for several years. And then ultimately, I think it was taken over by uh, uh, Ann Jansen. Yes, that's right. And I know there was many other people involved too, but uh, those are the three names that come immediately to mind, just to give them a little shout out. You're right. And I, I know, I don't know the, the, the first two you mentioned, but Ann Jansen and I go are, go back quite a ways and... And she's now running the audiobook division at Penguin Random House. So I still work with her to this day when I you know, record my audiobooks. Yeah. And she may have just retired or be about to. Oh, um, you might yeah. be right. Yeah. 
And uh, so, yeah, welcome to the club. So you're in the club. She's in the club. I recently joined that club three months ago. We need to get Mark there. I oh, hate congratulations. you. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> <Very> Mark. <laughs> no, I'm very proud of all of you. I'm very happy for all of you. <laughs> I, I aspire to be all of you at some point. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's uh, it's it's. There's nothing like it. I I haven't given my day, the day job that I had and and loved for 30 some odd years have not given it a thought uh, since yeah. I, I hung it up because I'm doing now what I've wanted to do for a very long time, which is just think about writing all the time and, yeah. and, and writing. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I, and I want to, I'm going to ask you about that right now. And cause yeah. I know we, you have a piece of art that you're going to propose as we do on this uh, podcast. And, and we'll get to that in the last two or three minutes of the show. But, um, <laughs> but Wait a minute, now, that's not the format. <laughs> So yeah, so so you retired and you're writing. How quickly and easily were you able to transition into the full time writing, and how how did that go? Yeah, it took about twenty minutes, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't take long uh, at all, uh, and really, it was we're in the pandemic at the time, and mm. so I had a bit of a transition in that when the pandemic hit we all started working from home. So I was sitting at this very desk where I am right now, surrounded by books on all sides and things that make me uh, feel more like a writer. So I got to spend my entire day in here, even though what the work I was doing was, was not my own creative writing. That happened you know, in the evenings and weekends and stuff. So I already had the, the place, the location, the feeling of being in this place for extended periods of time. That was all had already taken root. And plus, when you, you give notice to your partner, your co-founder in this firm, and he was happy for me, but we had probably two months where I was still working. I wasn't, I wasn't writing yet. And, you know, in those two months, you, all your mind is doing is thinking about what's it going to be like when that final day comes. So uh, you have lots of time to anticipate it. And it, it honestly didn't take long because my heart had been a full-time writer mm. since my first novel came out in 2008. It just took 15 years before I could bring my head and the rest of my body uh, yeah. along with it. Wow. Yeah, because I'm, I'm having a, a little more difficulty because I honestly <laughs> thought that the day after I would, you know, spend that day and then, you know, get those those words down. But I there's so many distractions and not frivolous distractions, like things that need to get done. Yes. You know? and, and all of a sudden you have time to do them. And what's more, you have no excuse for not doing them. Yeah. And also I'm a people pleaser. So when people go, would you mind? And I'm like, well, but I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I hear you. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard. I think I'm the same way too. It's hard. Yeah. You got to care about the time. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's yeah. Tough. Uh, uh, but it is nice. Uh, do you have a place to write, Joe, where you are right now? Is that where you write? That's an interesting question. Um, yes, and I do try to write here where I am. This is, you know, my little office. But because like you, all of my writing has taken place to date in the nooks and crannies of my life. Right. I've kind of trained myself to be able to write anywhere, anytime. And so, it, you know, and that's why I you know, move to laptops so I could just take them anywhere. Right. And if I'm waiting for someone outside of an appointment or something like that, I'll, I'll write there. It doesn't matter. Right. Well, that might be one of the issues is you're used to 
being able to move quickly on a dime. Oh, I've got an hour here. I'm going to do this. Uh, yeah. And now when you're unencumbered by such uh, limitations, you have to write in this little space or this little time over here. Yeah, it's sometimes harder when the whole day spreads out in front of you to get yourself going. I, I, I get that. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. But do I'll you, get there. Do I you will. have a technique for that, Terry? Uh, I, I, like Stephen King, for example, he writes whatever it is, four hours first thing in the morning, he gets up us out of his coffee and he starts writing and he's done right. after four hours because that's really not going to be any good after that, he says. And that seems to work for him. Do you have a similar right. kind of... Well, I guess it's worked okay for him. Yeah, he seems to be doing, he seems to be struggling <laughs> along and making managing it. You know, yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have a when we renovated our house back in two thousand and eight, we built this library on the third floor at the back of our house, and there's a little balcony that overlooks our backyard. I look out, and all I see is trees, and I usually don't have any trouble getting myself up here in the morning. Uh, and I, I shut the door and that when I shut the door, it's kind of like I'm now in this separate little capsule that that uh, I, I'm untouchable, which is obviously not true, but that's what it feels like. And sometimes I don't I don't get going right away, but I'm sitting here and I'm in the space where mm-hmm. I write. I'm in a place that if you came in here, you would think oh, there's probably a writer who works here just because <laughs> I like to surround myself with things that make me feel like a writer for those days when I don't actually feel like a writer, it, it helps. Yeah. And so it's an, a really nice place to be. I have a couple of guitars sitting over here that I can try writing of a different kind if I need to. Mm. Now, because this is an audio podcast uh, and so people aren't seeing what we're seeing, I'll just describe, it look it almost looks like a virtual background behind you. <laughs> like it could be, you know, except there not. isn't that, you know, <laughs> yeah. the aliasing and whatnot that you usually see. But yeah, there's a, a bookshelf full of books, and there's a, a picture of a typewriter to the right of your head. Is it an Underwood? Looks like it to me. But... Uh, I think it is an Underwood, and yeah. I have a real Underwood uh, typewriter yeah. from the 20s over on my shelf cool. over here. Cool. I've always wanted yeah. one of those. Yeah. And then, beside ah, the picture yes. of the typewriter, there is a map. The eyes have been questioned. Segway. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. a pro. Joe, I was going to do that if Joe wasn't going to. <laughs> yeah, so that is what we were supposed to talk about today, the right. map. Yeah. Can you tell us about the map then? Yeah, it, it isn't actually a map from 1928. It is a reproduction of the actual map, a street map of Paris from 1928 that I I found somewhere online and it's you know it's even got the the aged fold marks in it even though it's it's a reproduction and i had it framed which cost 10 times as much as the map itself cost it's inspiring to me because paris that particular city and the 1920s that particular period in history it was such a, a pivotal time in in literature really well, frankly, in the post-war period after 19, the 1918 end of the war, the f- First Great War, the winds of change really swept through Europe, and Europe was ripe for reform and revolution, and all of these artists of all descriptions gathered in Paris in the 1920s, painters, poets, dancers, musicians, composers, writers, 
And uh, really, they reshaped the cultural landscape in almost all of those fields. But chief among them, I think, was, was literature. And a whole bunch of expat writers moved to Paris following all the rest of the artists because Paris was a really inexpensive city in which to live at the time. So much cheaper than almost anywhere else in the world, which is why Paris became the epicenter for this cultural revolution of sorts. And when I wrote my first novel and I actually began to feel like I might be a writer, those periods in literary history loom larger for me. And I started reading about the writers in Paris in the 1920s, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Ezra Pound and Ford Maddox Ford and Gertrude Stein and a guy named Morley Callahan, uh, hmm. a great Canadian writer, uh, and their their contributions. And, and I just sort of fell in love with the city and with the period. And it doesn't take a lot of inspiration beyond looking at that map to keep me uh, going. Plus, I've got about 300 books here uh, all on that period. And I don't even like Hemingway. I probably know most about. I've read mo- more books about Hemingway than anyone else in that period. And I can't stand Hemingway's writing. <laughs> and I think he was. Can we swear on this podcast? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Yep. He was a, <laughs> Go ahead. A prime asshole of the, of the first <laughs> yes. order for almost his entire life. Now, you know, I should. To be fair, he was also mentally ill probably mentally ill for the last 20 years of his life, though it was not really obvious to those who might know about such things until the last, you know, five years of his life. But so maybe he had, he had an excuse or at least an explanation for his behavior. But, but you can't question the seismic impact he had on writing at the time, taking what was previously been these really ornamented, labyrinthine, flowy sentences and stripping it right down to the barest of essentials. And using a vocabulary, there's probably no more than about a hundred words. I mean, anybody of any education level could read a Hemingway story and and be just as wrapped up in it, because that's how he wrote. And I, on the other hand, I hail from the why use six words when 12 will do school <laughs> of writing. I, I love the language. It's It's a bountiful, rich language, and I like to explore its outer reaches. So I'm all in for a long, multi-claused, ornamented sentence <laughs> if it if it flows nicely. So there's no reason for me to like Hemingway beyond just the clear impact he had at a time when he just arrived at the right time in the right city mm-hmm. with the right approach to literature to foment this change, to catalyze this shift in literature with which we are still living in a way a hundred years later. So that's probably more than you wanted to know about the the map of uh, Paris from 1928. (laughs) If I can follow up on Hemingway for a second, how much do you think his background as a journalist, because he was a journalist for the Toronto Star, right? So how much do you think that had an impact on on the quality of his writing or the approach he had to his prose? I think it was tremendously influential, Mark. He, uh, his first job as a journalist was at the Kansas City Star, and they handed him this little card that had on it the rules of, of journalism at the Kansas City Star. 
And they are essentially the rules that defined his writing, whether he was writing journalism, which he continued to do in Paris as a foreign correspondent, mm-hmm. at least for a time, but also in his his fiction. So he, he applied the same rules. And that may be why it was such a such a, a big shift, because no one was writing fiction short or long in that style at the time. Or if they were, they weren't doing it as well as as he was doing it, because pretty well it's heaped at his feet that he had created this kind of this kind of writing, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, so I think it was very, very influential. Had he not been a journalist, uh, you wonder. So he found his voice, mm-hmm. I think, before he started writing fiction. He found his voice when he was a court reporter at the Kansas City Star. And the, the mental illness you referred to, I mean, he, he committed suicide, so probably he was depressed. Was there anything else? Well, there are a few factors. Uh, there's a family history in the Hemingway clan of mental illness. His father committed suicide. Uh, his granddaughter committed suicide. I think there are seven members of his immediate family and uh, generations that. that came after who committed suicide. Uh, so depression, he called it the black ass, <laughs> uh, he did have sort of clinical depression, but well, nobody called it clinical depression yeah. then. But the other factor was he had, over the course of his life, six or seven serious concussions, serious head injuries. Uh, and the last one, probably the most serious, when he he and his wife, uh, Mary, at the time, his fourth wife, uh, were in two plane crashes in the space of two days in in Good Africa. Lord. Yeah, they were flying in small planes. They weren't, you know, the, the first one wasn't a major one. It was a bad land. It flipped over, but everyone was fine. And then they had to get another plane to fly them out. And that plane crashed r- more seriously and it caught on fire. And he literally used his head as a battering ram to get the door that was jammed shut open wow. uh, or he would have perished. But serious, serious concussions over the course of, uh, of his life that many are now in hindsight, in clinical yeah. hindsight, are suggesting uh, it, it affected his mental health in, in a serious way towards the end. He was very much paranoid at the end of his uh, life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a sad, a sad state of affairs. And he couldn't write anymore. And of course, that just crushed him. Uh, so, but yeah, so a, a fascinating, a fascinating life. But I'm, I'm most drawn to his time in Paris, in his formative years as a writer, when he was hanging out with Pablo Picasso and F. Scott Fitzgerald and, and Morley Callahan and, and having an affair with Pauline Pfeiffer behind his wife Hadley's back and, and the famous incident of when Hadley lost all of his manuscripts on the train, which seriously wow. affected his their relationship for some time, may have catalyzed his straying, roving eye. I mean, he just was not a, a not a nice person. Hmm. Really. Would he have gone to Gertrude Stein's uh, salon as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He spent a lot of time with Gertrude Stein, and and he wasn't too and, rough around the edges for that. <laughs> apparently not. They oh, they okay. liked each other in the beginning. Oh, okay. In the beginning, and then they had a, a major, a major falling out, and he never said anything nice about her after about nineteen twenty nine. I would, I think, something mm. like that. 
but she was the, the center of the literary salons and, and frankly, the art salons yeah. at the time. And you'd go there and, and Picasso would be there and Hemingway would be there and uh, other writers and dancers. And I mean, it was just, was the place to be if you're um, interested in the in, all my favorite writers uh, hung out in Prague but uh, oh yeah okay well that's... are you baiting me <laughs> if you've been listening to the Mark podcast Lindenburg. in the first season there was a run of me mentioning living in Prague and I think Joe's baiting me yeah which is and actually more time. than more than people realize because I cut some of those out yeah I know <laughs> but, at the yeah. time actually at the time it was a very similar kind of thing right it was people escaping a bad economy in North America and you could live right. in Prague very cheaply. The same kind of thing as Paris of the twenties. Right. And people were calling Prague the Paris of the twenties, but I don't think any Hemingways came out of <laughs> Prague right. of the nineties. Not work. yet. I'm working, yeah. but you know, I don't oh, yeah. think I'm any Hemingway. <laughs> I like adjectives too much. Yeah, me too. me too. We used to make fun of Hemingway in high school. We had to read for whom the bell tolls. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he would make fun of Hemingway. We do we do their dialogue. It's like, Keva, that is a hill. Truly, that is a hill to test a man. <laughs> what a hill it is. Yes, yeah. it is a hill. Yeah. It is a hill. <laughs> exactly. That, that's exactly it. Yeah. Now, Terry, I, I assume you've been to Paris yourself? Yeah, many, uh, many times. Uh, my wife and I go there in the last dozen years we've gone like every every two years and and we always we're creatures of the left bank which is where all of this was happening in the 1920s yeah uh, i i seldom venture over to the right the right side of the sand the right bank of the sand when we're there but occasionally we do but we just feel really at home on the left bank and in this certain neighborhood that we have gravitated to which is you know, a block away from Les Deux Magots, which was one of Hemingway's favorite uh, cafes. And it's a five minute walk from the uh, Luxembourg Gardens. And, you know, it's it's all those things you read about when you read about Paris in the 1920s are hmm. a that, short walk from is where Is that Montparnasse? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's close roughly. to Montparnasse. Yeah. yeah. We're a little bit uh, further towards the Seine than uh, actual oh, okay. Montparnasse, but it's, it's an easy walk to Montparnasse. Nice. Uh, Every other trip I go, I do the Hemingway walking tour. That's uh, awesome. I think I could probably give that tour now. <laughs> but it is it is funny, you know. You can, but Paris, as I wrote in my in my latest novel, because Paris figures in my latest novel, you know, Paris is a time machine. Its very nature, its architecture, the way it's laid out, it is very resistant to change. And mm-hmm. all of those cafes where all those people yeah. hung out. They're all still in the same place and they're all, you know, they might have a new awning and a new sign outside, but inside, Le Dumago hasn't changed or, or La Rotonde or La Coupole. They haven't changed at all. They're all exactly as they were. The floor is the same. It's the same floor, the parquet, t- the tiled floors. And so you can just go and it's so easy to, to drift back in time when you're sitting in one of those cafes because that's mm. what they looked like. Yeah. I almost hesitate, hesitate to ask, but did you enjoy that movie that Woody Allen did about that? Uh, I, Midnight in Paris? I, I did. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I was I was always going to like that movie, I yeah. think. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like made for you, really, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, kind of like it, it was made for me. But, but you know, I, I didn't – I thought Hemingway was over the top. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
but you know, just to see those those scenes again, and you yeah. know, we live just a few blocks. We live <laughs> our hotel that we stay in when we go to Paris. It feels like we're living there because we've been so often. But it's about a, a two minute walk from the famous staircase that uh, Owen Wilson would be on when he got yeah. picked up in the old car. But so I, I liked it for uh, in, in for sentimental reasons, I guess. I'm not sure it was ever going to win any major awards, but. Uh, but I, I've always been fascinated by the the idea of not time travel. I I, I, I mean, that seems to me as an engineer, a man of science, a something that we're never going to get to. But but if I had one wish, put it that way, one wish, it would be to be able to go back in time as a cognizant visitor from our time. Otherwise, y- you want to be aware that you are back in time. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's Paris in the twenties is probably one of my first stops on that tour. Mm. Mark, we need to devote a podcast to time travel. It's a very I common think. theme on this podcast. We've we've mentioned we love time, time travel, travel almost every podcast. It doesn't matter who is really. Here. Yeah, it's. I think it's a, but I think it's natural because if you think about it, writing fiction is a form of time travel. Of course, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. back and forward. So it makes sense that we that's talk right. about it a lot. The idea has been with me for such a long time. I remember reading, I tried to get my hands on books that were written by, you know, diaries of sailors on tall ships or something. And because that seemed to me to be the closest thing to being there, like he just wrote that in that moment. So I, I've been thinking about how we can go back in time for a long time. Uh, and it just, I haven't come up with anything brilliant how it's going to happen. But uh, there was a movie called Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeves and Jane Seymour once. I like that movie. That affected yeah. me, I think, yeah. because of my interest in time travel. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't going to win anything either, but uh, it was a nice movie. I liked it. I also liked the one they made with, I can't remember what this one was called, but the premise was H.G. Wells went, went forward in time to catch a serial killer. Right, the Victorian yeah. era. Have you seen that movie, yeah. Joe? Yes. Our, our, yeah. our listeners are angrily screaming at their iPods now, <laughs> That's telling right. us what the title is. But if only there was some kind of device we could check. <laughs> wasn't that wasn't the bad guy Malcolm McDowell? Or yeah, Malcolm uh, McDowell was yeah, the Malcolm killer. McDowell. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. That was cool. <laughs> uh, another Sorry, another question related to Paris. How's your French? My French isn't bad, Joe. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I <laughs> I uh, I'm a, a product of the Toronto district school board French program. Uh, I took French until grade 13. I'm old enough that I had to do grade 13. So my French is quite formal. And my accent, I don't think is is too bad. But, you know, the problem is I get a few phrases down pat and I deliver them. And the person I'm speaking to assumes I can speak French then and they respond and I'm I'm lost. Uh, so yeah, if they yeah. speak slowly, I can I can generally keep up. But I'm not. I'm not great. I worked in a in a unilingual francophone uh, member of parliament's office uh, in my years in in politics, and that helped. But I, I actually think it was the grounding I had in grammar in in French class from grade five until grade thirteen that helped it. Sort. I have. I feel like I have a bit of a French language infrastructure established from that experience that I dust off every couple of years when I go to Paris and it takes me a, you know, a a day or so. And then I'm feeling, Oh, I'm, I, I'm getting it. And, And sometimes it blends together. You know, someone will say something 
with a French accent in English. And I'll go, hey, I got that. <laughs> no, you, yeah. you literally stopped. Oh, no, that was English. Okay, no, yeah. now I know why I They're got They're just it. messing with you, man. <laughs> I, know, yeah. with you. I know, it's true. It's true. But, uh, anyway, it's fun. I, I, hope it'll, uh, I hope it continues to get better because that would mean I'm going back to Paris uh, often enough that it might improve. But. Now, you mentioned Ford Maddox Ford as one of the uh, writers who was in Paris at that time. I heard a story about Ford Maddox Ford. Maybe you know because you've researched uh, some of this, read books about that period. I heard the story. I've never heard it verified since, but somebody, he was at an event and somebody asked him how his latest book did. And he told them, well, I'm pretty good. I think it sold like 20,000 copies. And they were like, oh, wow, that's gee, pretty impressive. you know." And then they wandered away. And then the person standing next to him who was involved in the book business and knew the truth said to him, now, you and I both know that book only sold 2,000 copies. Why did you tell him 20,000? And he said, well, you know, he's like in the, the world of uh, popular fiction. That, those are the numbers that he expects, you know. So really in his world, it, it equates to 20,000. Yeah. So, And you had told us the numbers of your books earlier in this podcast. So I'm wondering if it's possible that maybe you... <laughs> oh. This is hard journalism. One of you guys has to play Morley Callahan, and one of you has to play Hemingway. We're going to have a fist fight and see what happens. That's it. As long as the the timekeeper keeps proper time. I I am, of course, only kidding. I know, I know, but it's funny you can say that. Notice I haven't told you about my book sales of the other books, just the one that Canada Reads. Seriously, Canada Reads is that's the only reason that book has sold 150,000 copies. But I hope it's drawn readers to to my my other novels. But I think the nearest one to that has probably sold about sixty thousand copies. So like that's, it's a that's the Canada Reads effect. Yeah, well, sixty thousand uh, so is a bestseller for sure. Oh, many absolutely. times over in Canada. Yeah. yeah, that's always a question. What is a bestseller? Uh, and <laughs> as far as the publishers are concerned, a bestseller is if it if it appeared on the bestsellers list. Oh, okay. Yeah, I uh, guess that, that's that, numbers changing, isn't it? That, yeah. That's what they yeah. they say. Uh, and yeah, I've been I've been very lucky. Uh, you know, all of mine have been on the bestsellers list. Wouldn't have been without Canada Reads, I don't think. Uh, yeah. That and I I never say no when I'm invited to go and to a book club or to a, a library in a rural village in yeah. Eastern Ontario, and I actually quite enjoy doing that. Uh, but I think it's really helpful uh, to, uh, when you get a chance to, to promote the book, to go and do that. So I've done, so I didn't know this, but somebody emailed me two years ago now and said, did you know you've just given your 1000th book talk? <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's and fabulous. Because he's gone through my, I, I've archived all my appearances on on my website just yeah. if only as a as a record of it all because that's what i refer to when I, what, what am i doing this week well i've got to do that and i just have them all archived and some guy with far too much time on his hand counted them all and and emailed me that so yeah so i've done you know probably 1100 or so uh book talks Gee, in that, that, you know what that's in like winston churchill territory i, I read a biography of him oh, really? recently and yeah he did so many speeches you know before he did his big famous right michelle fight in the, in the, in the, the oceans and the you know trenches yeah. and you know, on the beach so i imagine you could probably deliver a heck of a speech now i'm sure i could <laughs> i could mobilize an entire nation to uh... <laughs> no but it's just uh and lots of writers and you guys know this you're both writers you know other writers 
lots of writers don't don't like well public speaking is not a natural act mm-hmm. uh, and it's one of our primal fears as a species but i think because i was in the consulting agency world i was spending my life in boardrooms pitching our services trying to get them to uh to sign with us that I find it quite easy and refreshing and fun to go to a, a library where there are 12 people standing there, six of whom had never heard of you. And I do a, I have a PowerPoint on each of my novels and I, I give a little talk. And, and if you just connect with a couple of them and, and they read the book and like it, and some people say, why would you go to a book club where they've already bought the book? Because they bought it to read it, to read for their book club. Why would you go there? You've already made the sales. But I, I go there and I talk to their book club because I want to make I want them to buy my next book. Yeah, exactly. They're or, or your other friends. books. Yeah, and, and it's not yeah. just about yeah. selling the books. I would imagine. No, no. It's a uh, it, if you're a good person uh, in general and you're being genuine when you're with them and you're helpful and kind and charming and and maybe funny a few times and, and nice. They will think more favorably about your next book, even if it's not as good as the previous one. But you you have put a goodwill deposit in the bank. And I think that's been very helpful to me when, when a new book comes out. I always tell writers, if you get invited somewhere, just go. Just say yes yeah. and go. So uh, amazingly, uh, I have been invited to two book clubs for my books. Excellent. One, one of which was yours. <laughs> I remember. Yes. <laughs> I remember. Yes. Yeah. That was but you fun. weren't there. You weren't there. I was yeah. probably out oh. at another book club. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. But that was great fun. Oh, it's, it was... is great. And, and you know, what's not to like? These are people who love books and they've read your book. You yeah. Know? They're, they're my friends, even if they didn't like the book. I mean, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, I, I do find the on the, these two occasions. I mean, I was very honored, and it was wonderful. And it was Timothy Neesom, yeah, who invited me to that one. Yeah, I did find them a little uncomfortable after a while, being the center of attention, right. and then going away afterwards, feeling, oh man, I I said too much, I talked too much, you know. <laughs> I don't. Do you ever feel that way, or? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, at London Words Fest, uh, Writers Festival in London, Ontario, I I did my talk in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon. And this is, I I sort of, I gaffed in the question period, a woman I know who is a great writer. She, uh, she's written three or four books. I blurbed one of them or maybe two of them. Uh, And she's very nice. And she interviewed me on stage at the London Writers Society last May. So she stood up and said nice things about my talk and, and I took the opportunity to say, well, if you don't know, this is Elaine Kugler, and she's a fine writer as well. And I encourage you to look up her website and get her books because they're they're really good. And someone said, well, how do you spell her name? And I spelled it incorrectly. I spelled it C O U G L A R. And and I heard <laughs> I heard oh, no. Elaine say, no, no, it's E R. And I'm sorry, it's E R. I was thinking of Cougar. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> because cougar is ar right yeah, yeah, yeah her name yeah. is coogler like it's <laughs> almost the same and of course she's an older woman and everyone broke out laughing and i hadn't even realized i put yeah, my foot in what she said <laughs> <laughs> so i 
I, I got on the train that night thinking, you know, you you're an idiot. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it it happens. Um, of course, happens. but you, I think you get cut a lot of slack. I mean, we're all the same people we were now than before we wrote our books. Yet the fact that you've written a book, most people have never met an author before, and it's when they have an author coming to their book club, like it's it's sometimes for them sort of a big deal though it's we can't understand why but but it is so uh, you get cut a lot of slack and if you're a comic novelist like i am doing a talk or at a book club they're ready to laugh you can say something that isn't even remotely funny and they will think oh that's hilarious and they will start <laughs> laughing because they're they're primed and and ready and that's that's pure kindness and generosity on on, on their part you know, I, I still think it's a it's worth the time and effort. And it is time and it is effort mm-hmm. to go to these places and, and to meet with them. But they're the ones who are buying your books. So uh, I think it's time well spent. Yeah. Well, I think you're preaching to the choir here. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And if anyone ever invites us. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm happy. I'm ha- <laughs> I've, I've been to one book club. I go to more if I could. Yeah. I was going to add a question, though, because that was one thing that I, I came away from it book club experiences they wanted a definitive answer for something Mm -hmm. that i didn't want to give an answer to right i'm sure that has happened to you how does that how do you handle that well uh, if i know know the answer i just pretend i don't know the answer right okay if i don't want to give the answer yeah yeah it doesn't hasn't come up very often okay what happens more often is that the reader the reader makes assumptions about a point oh, I'm trying sure. to make. And they will say, were you thinking about Dante's Inferno when you wrote this scene and how it connects with Nietzsche? And, and <laughs> sure, all what the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and they'll ask this and, and, I'll, and I'll just nod. nod. And say, wow, I can't believe you picked up on that. That's, that's <laughs> really something. That's yeah. exactly what I was trying to go for. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I will come clean. In the, it, often they are... And, imputing or they're endowing me with far more thought uh, and knowledge than i yeah. than i have and i used i just i just set them straight i make a big joke out of saying well yes exactly good uh, for you and then i say i have no idea why that turned out the way it did but that wasn't the reason <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had a, a character in a sorry mark no i had a character in a book uh, by the name of wildebear and somebody said He's often bewildered. I thought that was very clever of you, you know, to call him Wildebeer and he's bewildered. And, and I'm like, I, oh. I had uh, that thought actually when I read the book. I yeah. Thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Maybe on a he subconscious Wildebeer. level. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, Mark, I interrupted you. Oh, no, I just wanted, I wanted to make sure Terry had a chance to talk about his new book. Because, I mean, oh. that's because it's largely set in Paris, right? Yeah, it's, it's certainly half is, is set in Paris. Yeah, this was a, this novel was a bit of a departure for me in that it was the first novel I wrote post-retirement. Mm-hmm. It's the first novel I wrote with more time at my disposal to really sink myself into uh, the story. And I wrote the novel in the middle of the pandemic. Right. Uh, mm. And I think I was affected the way most of us were affected by the pandemic, feeling a little uh, socially isolated and, you know, grieving some friends and family who some of whom had not made it through the pandemic and 
So I, I remember the story began to emerge in my adult brain pan, and it started with a narrator who was grieving the loss of his wife. Uh, the novel opens mm-hmm. two and a half years after his wife had been one of the first COVID victims in Toronto, and he's not doing so well. And it doesn't really sound like the kind of comic premise that might underpin <laughs> some of my other novels. But I, I think I felt, and I almost realized this in hindsight. I'm not sure I knew it. I was conscious of it at the time. But I think I was worried that if I didn't at least recognize the struggles that were going on out there and the pandemic in general and the loss, living with loss, that uh, readers would say, well, what are you doing? Where, where's the pandemic? This was a big deal in our life. And you just, you just went right by it and you're not even, mm. you didn't see us. So that it sort of stayed with me. And I also took a, a, a page out of John Irving's handbook. I'm a huge John Irving oh. fan. And he so says, floats. Yeah, yeah. Well, he says he, he writes about that, which he fears most. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what he hopes never happens to him or to anyone he loves. And, you know, the, the thought of, of losing, I just hope I predecease my spouse. Uh, the thought of losing my spouse, particularly unexpectedly when you couldn't be with her at the end, because in those early days of the pandemic, yeah, that's you couldn't go so into hard. the room with them. Yeah. Uh, it was a terrible way for uh, families to suffer loss. Anyway, I that's what was coming into my into my mind, and that's the story I wrote. So I, I I faced the fear instead of casting it aside, and I put laughs in where it made sense. Uh, so the humor is a bit more organic than perhaps in some of my other novels. I didn't bend the story to my will to create comic situations, which is what you can do, and I have done. I just followed this storyline and it ended up being a, like a love, it's a love story, hmm. uh, a loss and recovery, re- coming back from it, uh, living again. So uh, I hope it's funny in places. It also talks about uh, male friendship. It talks about aging. I've never written a narrator who's my own age, which tells you how old I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I finally wrote a narrator who's my own age. And uh, and he's coming to grips with uh, the aging process, as I am. So I gave it to my narrator in the hopes that I might learn something. Uh, and it talks about songwriting, and which has been a, a big but private part of my life since I was 17 years old. Hmm. And I'd never written about, strangely, I'd never written about songwriting before, though I spend, I have spent, not so much now, but a lot of my time doing that. So I wrote about uh, I wrote about I gave songwriting to my narrator and I actually included in the novel two original songs one I wrote about 15 years ago and one I wrote 42 years ago mm. uh, that I actually recorded in the studio and they're laid into the audiobook the actual song when they come oh, cool. the novel, nice. yeah. all of wow. a sudden there my guitar starts and I start singing which was you know, I, I've never been under suffering under the delusion that music would one day be my career. I'm good enough to know that I'm not good enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. I played in band, a band in university, and that kind of stuff. And but it's always been private. Like I, you know, I've probably written thirty or forty songs, and maybe six people have heard some of them. Well, and, and yeah, something you do for for pleasure, and, right. and 
And I think, yeah, all art doesn't need to be for public consumption. It can sometimes just be for ourselves. Exactly. And when you hear these songs, you might agree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That reminds me of one of my favorite Harry Chapin songs is Mr. Tanner. Yeah. Yeah. Which is about that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. He's a he's a baritone. He sings while he he's a he's presses clothes and he sings and all his friends say you should you should go be you know a singer and it doesn't work out and no. then he doesn't want to sing anymore. It's tragic. It's really yeah, tragic. It's a tragic song. As most of their Chapin songs are. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Wow, but that's yeah, it's true. that very idea that you know just because it's you have an art doesn't mean you necessarily have to share it because it could just feed that's your right. own soul and that's all that's required. That's exactly that's exactly right, and that's how I always thought of it. And I sort of got talked into uh, putting them in the audiobook, and uh, I don't regret it. But and you know, the, was that Anne did that? Um, no, um, no, my my producer, she, she's left now, but uh, she's not there anymore. But she because she insisted that your work be included in the audiobook. She, she didn't insist it. They just it was just an idea they had when they found out that the songs were real. They didn't know that the songs were real until they read the author's note at the book right. of the novel. And they said, "Have you got recordings?" And and uh, I had record. I just recorded them last August. And you know, a producer made me sound probably as good as I will ever sound, uh, which is still not saying very much but and i sent them the center of the recordings and and she really liked them so she said can we put them in and not at the back we want to put them in like when they come up in the in the story well i think you're sufficiently piquing everybody's interest now that there's going to be a run in this audiobook so <laughs> yeah there you go yeah, yeah. It's the perfect medium to pitch that to all three well, people who are going to go buy the book. <laughs> at, at the Book Drunkard Festival in Uxbridge, uh, I have a, music, a professional musician friend who I also play ball hockey with, which is in the novel also. He's a writer too and a bit of a philosopher. But we, we, we perform the songs live. It seemed like a good idea eight months earlier when, <laughs> when, when the, the you know creative director of the Book Drunkard Festival suggested it. And I said, sure. And then it got, it seemed like a progressively worse idea as the weeks passed. <laughs> uh, but uh, we, we got through it. Uh, we got through it and it was kind of, uh, it was kind of fun. But anyway. Well, well I think it's uh, very cool. So unfortunately, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to wrap up the podcast now before you tell us you have to go to uh, dinner. Um, <laughs> yeah. which, which may become a running joke in this podcast. Just, now. We just right. send everyone a parachute. Before they get on the podcast so we can see them pulling the ripcord and yeah. (laughs) That's right. But Mark, any further questions before uh, we let our team I really, I just, I was very proud of you, man. I think you've done amazing work and I'm really happy to see you. You were there at the very beginning. I I was. I remember when you were talking about podcasting your book. It's, that was so cool. Yeah. You inspired me to podcast Marvel's Harry, actually. I wouldn't have done that otherwise. Oh, good. Well, that was a great book. Thank you. Well, I, I have wanted to uh, to meet you for some time, so I'm really glad uh, that we finally had the, the chance to do so virtually. A great pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Terry Fallis, thank you.
So Mark, you and I have discussed how people can support this podcast. And uh, one of the ways I would like to get them to support us is by, and I think you're going to like this, by uh, purchasing one of your books. Ooh, I like that. How about your books? We're going to start with your books. We'll start with my books? Okay. And today I would like to point people in particular to Alpha Max, which is a novel about the metaverse, which is kind of in vogue these days. Yeah, and it's, it doesn't take a lot of the standard approaches that the metaverse stories do. I think it's a bit more grounded. It's funny, and it's uh, and it's witty, and it's smart, and it's entertaining. Go to recreative.ca support, and you can find your books there. Alpha Max by Mark A. Rayner. Mm-hmm.